Because Jesus is King and because God is our Father, we are here today not only to sing praise to His name, but to hear from Him, to hear His voice as the Scriptures are read and preached. So I invite you to take out your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Exodus chapter 21. I'm going to begin this portion of our worship service by reading the text in its entirety, and then we will pray and walk through it together. Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 33, and we'll be working through chapter 22, verse 15. Exodus chapter 21, verse 33. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it has been known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay Five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over, or lets his beast loose, and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing, of which one says, this is it. The case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution." But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee." This is God's word to us this morning. Let's bow and pray. Father, we've sung this morning of your greatness and your glory, and also of our frailness and our weakness and our need for your mercy. 
Lord, I confess my own frailness in attempting to preach and proclaim your truth this morning. I ask that you would empower me, fill me with your spirit, and I pray that you would help each of us, make us alert. Give us this morning, Lord, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Though this text is one that may be difficult or seemingly obscure, we know that it is for our good and that it reveals your glory. So Lord, give us a hunger to know what it means and how it applies. Give us an eagerness to affirm what your word says is true and good. Give us the ability by your spirit to understand and receive this truth. And give us an eagerness to obey and to live a life that reflects the truth of scripture. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So this text falls in the midst of this portion known as the Book of the Covenant. In our series through Exodus, we've been working through the narrative where God rescues his people from Egypt, he brings them to Mount Sinai, and then he gives them his law. And now in this portion of Exodus, we're finding the laws themselves unpacked. The Ten Commandments are ten words, ten commands, ten principles that govern how God's people are to live and reveal God's character showing us what God is like and what pleases him. And this book of the covenant now, these statutory laws, they show us how the Ten Commandments are supposed to be applied and even enforced in Old Testament Israel. And a key theme, as we've been seeing throughout this section that deals with with punishment for crime, is the topic of justice. And even though our world right now is often confused about many things, Our world is often confused about how to define justice and equally confused about how to bring justice about. Nevertheless, one thing is clear when we look around us today. We know that justice matters. We know that it's important. Because we as human beings have been made in God's image, there is something about justice that resonates deeply within our souls. We know that it's necessary. And even deeper than knowing this truth, We feel it, don't we? We feel the need for justice. And we love to see when justice is done. We love to see it when the bad guy gets what he deserves. We love to see it when someone who's been victimized is restored and things are made right. Those are the ideas of retribution and restitution. And those are things we've been looking at here in this book of the covenant These principles from the Ten Commandments that are applied to daily life for ancient Israel. And while we are no longer under these laws, we have different laws that govern us today, these statutes help to explain what real justice looks like. And these statutes make sure that the guilty party gets what they deserve. That's retribution. We looked at that last week with crimes against persons. But it also talks to us about victims getting restored. Those who have been harmed being made whole. And that's this idea of restitution, which is the theme of our text this morning. And all of these crimes are crimes that deal specifically with property. These are property crimes dealing with the death of an animal, dealing with stolen property or damaged property, dealing with situations where you've entrusted um, certain goods or money to someone for safekeeping. And maybe they helped themselves out of that. Or even cases where property has been borrowed or rented and then damaged. What are we supposed to do? What what were the Israelites rather to do in these situations when there's these issues involving property? And the focus all throughout this text, if you picked up on it as we read it earlier, is the focus is not on retribution. 
The focus is on restitution, making things right for the victim. We see this language throughout the text. In verse 34 of chapter 21, we see the word restoration. In verse 36, and then in chapter 22, verse 1, we see the words repay two times. In verse 3 and 4, we see the word pay. In verse 5 and 6, we see the word restitution. In verses 7 and 9, we see the word pay. In verse 11 through 15, five times we see the word restitution. So just by listening to the emphasis of the text, we see this very simple point that biblical justice involves restitution. Biblical justice involves restitution. But if that's all we're supposed to get from this, we could be done. We've already read the text. We've seen 14 times where these terms are emphasized. But we need to say more than this. We need to say more than just the simple fact that biblical justice involves restitution. Because this principle is so overly broad that it's really not that helpful. So what I'd like to do is sort of pick a few principles out of this text for us this morning that will help us understand justice more clearly. And then when we get done doing that, we can look at how that should be applied today, in our day and age, in this current society, as those who fear God. So three principles I want to draw out. Number one is this, and it's a very simple observation. Those who are negligent must make restitution. So now we're getting more specific. Not just that justice requires restitution, but specifically those who are negligent must make restitution. We see this in three different scenarios that are laid out in this text. We see it in verse 36 in the case of accidental animal death. When one man's animal kills another and the owner knew that his animal was likely to behave this way. To put it in modern language, you know that your pit bull is aggressive and wants to kill or maim other dogs and you let it get out anyway. Well, in in that kind of a situation, the owner is held responsible Just like in the case we saw last week where an ox gores a human being to death, the owner is accountable because he knew, and this was irresponsible. So he is therefore required to provide a living ox to his neighbor, and the dead animal becomes his. So this is a clear case of restitution. We see the same thing in verses 5 through 6 where you have accidental crop destruction. And again, this is about more than just a financial loss. Losing crops was literally, it was literally taking food out of someone's mouth, taking food off of their table. So if an animal gets loose and grazes in your neighbor's crops, or if you're burning a field on your property or burning a brush pile and it gets out of control and damages his property, then you would be responsible to make restitution. And they were supposed to give of the best of their crops, the best of their vineyard, in order to make things right. And this would have ensured that people were extra careful. I don't know if any of you guys who live out in the country ever burn fields, but it only takes a little gust of wind for things to get out of control. And then it's a really stressful moment because you don't want your neighbor's house to burn down or his fields to burn down. Well, God's law dealt with these situations. And in cases of negligence, where someone else's crops were destroyed, there was to be restitution. There is to be restitution. Protecting your neighbor's interests meant being responsible. This was loving your neighbor as yourself. There's a third case where we see negligence. That's where you perhaps allow an animal to be stolen in verse 12. If an animal had been stolen from someone who was supposed to keep charge of it, 
then he's supposed to make restitution. I think this is a little bit like if I borrowed your car, but then I left it unlocked in the driveway with the keys in the ignition overnight. I wasn't paying attention, wasn't taking care of your stuff, and it was stolen. Then it's my fault. I need to make restitution. So in all three of these cases, when there is clear negligence, when someone is not doing what they're supposed to do, when they are not being responsible, then God's law specified that there must be restitution. There needs to be repayment. Such carelessness is a failure to love your neighbor as yourself. And God does not intend for the innocent party to bear the cost of someone else's irresponsible behavior. So this is helpful. We're getting more specific now. Biblical justice involves restitution. And specifically, it's for those who are negligent. Those who are negligent must make restitution. But there's a second principle. It's not just those who are negligent. Also, those who steal are required to make restitution. Stealing is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. And remember, this is applying and helping to enforce the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal is Exodus 20, verse 15. And here God gives us clear direction for this ancient society on how justice was to be enforced when someone was caught breaking, violating the Eighth Commandment. We see in verses 1 and 4 of chapter 22 that there is instruction regarding the theft of livestock. If the animal is recovered then not only is that animal to be given back, but there's supposed to be double repayment. If you stole a sheep from a neighbor, you're supposed to give him back that sheep that you stole and one of your sheep. And the beautiful irony of this is that what the thief intended to gain, he is forced to lose. This is truly a poetic kind of justice. However, if the animal cannot be recovered because they already had the barbecue, they already killed and ate the animal, or perhaps sold it, and it's long gone, they can't get it back, in that case, then it's not supposed to be double repayment. Restitution is supposed to go even higher. Four sheep for a sheep, and five oxen for a singular ox. The reason why oxen would be, the cost was steeper there, is that it took longer Uh, to to breed and grow and train and develop an ox. And it was more critical because it wasn't just used for wool and food. It was for plowing and planting. So you could lose an entire year's crop if you didn't have your ox ready to roll when it came time to plant. Those of you who are from farming communities know how important it is. There's that narrow window, window of weather where the time is right to get the crops in. So there's a higher penalty enforced for the loss of an ox. So we see this in the case where livestock is stolen. But also in verses 7 and 9, we see that this is true in cases where money or goods are stolen. And again, it's a double fee. If someone steals money, some other valuable household item, whether it be tools or clothing or, or something else that was important, then they were required to pay back double what they took. Again, what the thief hoped to gain, he is forced to lose. And we find that this penalty for theft is not limited for cases of breaking and entering and and sort of the classic robbery that you might think of. It also applies to situations where someone finds a lost item. And then when that item is, is identified as belonging to someone else, they refuse to give it up. Well, they're charged as guilty of theft. And that also requires double payment. There's no such thing as finders keepers here in the Old Testament law. So we see this idea of theft with livestock and 
uh, and with, with goods and money, and they're supposed to pay back double. But there's an interesting note here. Not only do they have to pay back double if they're caught, but there's a chance they might even have to pay with their life. Verse 2 of chapter 22 tells us about this. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. Meaning that the one who struck him is not charged with murder. This is justifiable in this case. The reason is, if someone's caught breaking in at night, it's hard to tell what their intention is. It's hard to tell if they're armed or not. It's hard to identify even who they are. So a homeowner was justified in using force to defend himself and his family in that situation. So the cost for a breaking and entering to steal might even be your life. But we find this clarification. If the sun was up, if this happens in the daylight, then it is presumably easier to tell if this person is attempting more than robbery. It's easier to tell if he's armed. It's easier to tell if your life is in danger. And so therefore, it's not okay to just kill them. This person, because they're identifiable, having done this in the daytime, they're supposed to be brought to court. They're supposed to be made to pay. Um, And if they cannot pay, then they're to be sold into slavery. And as we saw a few weeks ago, slavery was to be no more than a six-year term. So someone could be sold to pay for their theft. Maybe it was a year, maybe it was six months, maybe it was six years. Whatever the case was, they could be sold to pay for their debt. So to summarize, whether it's livestock or money or, or by working off your debt, the one who steals is expected to make restitution. Expected to make restitution. So restitution is required, first of all, from those who cause damage by negligence. Second, from those who steal. But there's a third principle we need to draw out this morning. It's this. Those who are not at fault must not be required to make restitution. Those who are not at fault are not required to make restitution. Just because someone suffers loss... Loss of property, loss of money, loss of an animal. And just because someone else may have been involved in the situation doesn't always mean that that person is guilty and has to pay. And friends, this is very, very important. In the book of Proverbs, in chapter 17, verse 15, it tells us that he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to God. God cares about justice, which means that those who are guilty are condemned. But those who are innocent should not be condemned. And God's law here makes it very clear that those who are not at fault must not be required to make restitution. We see this in four different cases throughout this section. We see in verse 35 of chapter 21 that you're not supposed to make restitution if it's a situation where there's mutual responsibility. Mutual responsibility. We see this in verse 35 of chapter 21. You can look at it there. If two animals fight and one kills the other, but this is just something that happened, there's no history of aggression, then the owners are supposed to share that loss. They share the loss. To require restitution from the owner of the victorious animal that would actually be unjust. 
but also doing nothing would be unjust. So what they're supposed to do is sell the live animal and split the money, and then they also butcher the dead animal and they split the meat. So both owners come out equal, even though one of their animals killed the other. In such a situation, this is not restitution. This is not repayment. This is both owners sharing the loss. This is mutual responsibility. We also see this in the case of just simple victimization in verses 10 through 13. If there's a situation where you were going out of town and there is no bank, there is no safety deposit box, so you would have likely entrusted any valuables to a neighbor for safekeeping. And if while you were gone, someone broke into his house and stole it. If there's no evidence that your neighbor was guilty, if there's no evidence your neighbor was in on it, if there's no evidence of him being involved in the theft, and if he is willing to swear his innocence before God and to put himself on the line from violating the commandment that says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, if he's willing to do that and he's proven innocent, then there's no repayment that is supposed to be made. You cannot require restitution from your neighbor in such a case. We also see this in situations where it is simply a providential loss. Look in verse 13 of chapter 22. This is a situation where an animal is in the care of a neighbor, but it's killed by a predator. It's torn by beasts. This is not the fault of the one who was in charge of the animal. This is what our modern-day insurance companies would call what? It's an act of God. This isn't something that can be controlled. It's not anyone's fault. And so there is no restitution required in this situation. There's another situation we see in verse 15 where you have someone who is renting out his property to someone else and then damage or loss happens. Well, in that situation, the one who rented it out factored in the risk. That's why he's getting money for lending out his ox or his tools or whatever it may be. So there's no restitution necessary in this situation because you knew the risk and you factored that in when you rented out your piece of equipment. So we see all these three principles at work in this text, that restitution is required of the negligent, it's required from the thief, but it is not required from someone who is not at fault. It is not required from the innocent, those who cannot rightly be blamed and held responsible for that loss. So remember that principle we stated at the beginning. Biblical justice involves restitution. It's very, very broad. Well, now we can be a little more precise having seen these statutes laid out in Scripture. We can be more specific. And God's law teaches us this, and here's the point this morning. Here's the point. Biblical justice involves restitution in varying degrees according to personal responsibility. I'll say that again because it's very, very important that we be specific here. Biblical justice involves restitution in varying degrees according to personal responsibility. That is biblical justice. So what I'd like to do in the time remaining that we have is sort of break that statement down and consider what it teaches us today, how that should affect our thinking and our behavior as those who fear God and want to honor him. There's two points of application this morning. One is, is, is to help you think rightly, 
And this is a matter of contemporary debate. It's, it's sort of an apologetic issue. And then the second point is one that is a matter of personal obedience. This is something that has to do with our own sanctification. So two points this morning. And I'll put these in the form of questions. And the first has to do with our thinking and in a modern debate that is raging in our current uh, social setting. And it's this. What does this mean? This idea of restitution. What does this mean for the question of reparations. What does this mean for reparations? You might say, what does that word mean? I haven't heard of reparations. Well, there are some today, both Christian and secular, who are claiming that the U.S. government, the state, or even white people in general, owe reparations, payments, to black Americans because of the historic injustices of slavery. Now, we can agree with with where they're coming from in the sense that we too would condemn what happened in the United States with slavery. We saw this a few weeks ago when we looked at the the laws regarding slavery, that anyone who steals a man to sell him, anyone found in possession of him, is to be put to death. God's law um, um, outlawed, flat out, flat out prohibited the slave trade. And, and, And we recognize the horrific injustice that was done through the transatlantic slave trade. And we can rightfully mourn and regret that our nation had a hand in that. So we can agree with with condemning the atrocities of slavery, but do we need to agree that it is right and biblical and necessary for the state or for part of the population to somehow try to make that right and make restitution in a financial sense? There's one Christian leader today, prominent leader, who defines reparations this way as material and social repayment made as acknowledgement and restitution by an offending party to an aggrieved party for wrongs done in order to repair the injuries, losses, and or disadvantages caused by the wrong. That's a long definition, but basically saying we need to make it right. We need to acknowledge what happened, and we need to square things up and make it right. There's one professor from Duke University, um, Dr. William Darity, who says that reparations should have three aims, an acknowledgement for the wrongs done, payment for the wrongs done, and then closure for both parties. And the claim is that if we do this, it will bring closure and it will make things right. So the question comes, okay, in light of what people are arguing for today, in light of what some people are saying needs to happen, how should we as Christians think about that in light of the biblical teaching on restitution? Because biblical justice does involve restitution. So it's a question worth asking. So based on what we've read this morning in Exodus 21 and 22, should we be in support of this? Should Christians support this modern push for reparations for the historical injustice of slavery. Is this the right application of what Scripture teaches? So while there are, to be sure, some apparent similarities between reparations and biblical restitution, I do not believe that modern-day reparations is biblical restitution. I do not think this is biblical justice. And I'd like to share with you four reasons why, based on what we've seen this morning from the book of Exodus. Number one, modern reparations are not paid by the perpetrators of injustice. They are not paid by the perpetrators of injustice. What we saw throughout Exodus 
21 and 22 is that the one guilty for the crime, the one guilty of negligent behavior, he is required to make restitution and no one else. This is justice. To go beyond this is not justice, it's something else. It's something different. When we require restitution to be paid by those who did not perpetrate the injustice, this is not enforcing justice, and it's not an expression of repentance. Throughout the Old Testament, the case is made strongly again and again and again for personal responsibility for sin. We won't take the time to turn there this morning, but in Deuteronomy 24, 16, Ezekiel 18, verse 20, Jeremiah 31, verse 30, the case is made that God judges those who commit sin for their sin and not their descendants. The penalty for sin falls upon those who have committed it. This is God's justice. This is biblical justice. And modern reparations are not being paid by those who did something wrong. And so therefore, we would reject this claim. Secondly, modern reparations are likewise not received by the direct victims of that injustice. Again, if we look through Exodus 21 and 22, payment is made to the person who directly suffered loss at the hands of their crime or their negligence. This is personal. It's a personal transaction. Modern reparations are not received by the direct victims of injustice. Yes, we can see how sins from generations past have affected the situation today, but it is no longer possible to draw a direct line to direct individuals. We simply can't do that. Third, modern reparations make no differentiation between the various levels of responsibility. Again, this is something we see here in Exodus, that God holds people responsible to varying degrees, various levels, depending on their involvement. The, crime, the, the, the punishment, rather, is different if you are just negligent versus if you're a thief. And the crime is different if you're a thief who still possesses that animal versus if you're a thief who already sold it and made a profit. Elsewhere, we see in Scripture that there is an option for leniency for restitution. That if you voluntarily confess your sin, if you voluntarily come forward and say, it's me, I stole your sheep, then you don't have to make double the restitution. You can simply return the stolen item and things are fine. So there's varying levels of responsibility. There's differentiation here in biblical justice. But modern reparations is a one-size-fits-all solution. There is no way to determine who among us is more responsible or less responsible. And so therefore, this does not fit the biblical pattern for restitution. Fourth, modern reparations have no useful standard of measurement. There is no specificity. Again, we see that God's law is incredibly precise. It is clear. One sheep or four sheep. Double the crop. Double the money, double the goods, whatever it may be, from the best of your vineyard, not the leftovers. It is specific in the amount and the quality of what is to be repaid. But modern reparations have no useful standard of measurement. There's no specificity. It includes far too much speculation. It is far too imprecise and unspecific, unlike biblical justice. Now, often in this discussion, people will appeal to the story of Zacchaeus in the New Testament. And I would like to invite you to turn there. Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 19. 
People often appeal to the New Testament story of Zacchaeus as a model for reparations because Zacchaeus is someone who makes restitution in the New Testament, and it is an expression of his repentance. But upon closer inspection, the story of Zacchaeus, I believe, reinforces our conclusion. It reinforces our conclusion that modern reparations for slavery in the United States is not the same as biblical restitution. I won't read the whole story here. In Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10 is where we find this narrative. Many of you are familiar with the story. Zacchaeus is a wealthy tax collector. Tax collectors were those who were sellouts. They were traders. They worked for Rome, the occupiers, the oppressors. And they set their own salary. Their job was to collect payment for Rome. And anything on top of that that they could collect went straight to their pocket. So they set their own salary and they often oppressed and extorted their own people in order to get rich quick. Now Zacchaeus went to hear Jesus teach, wanted to see Jesus. And Jesus um, sought him out and said, I want to have dinner at your house And the amazing thing that we see in Zacchaeus in verse 6 is that he receives Jesus joyfully. He receives him joyfully. And what I take this to mean is that he wasn't just excited that Jesus would be present. He was actually receiving Jesus in his person. He was receiving Jesus as Messiah. He was receiving not just Jesus' person, but also his proclamation, this message of repent and believe in the gospel. This message of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what Jesus preached as he went town to town. And Zacchaeus receives all of this with joy. And the evidence of of his response to Jesus and Jesus' message, the fruit of his repentance, is what we see in verse 8. It says, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything... I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Look at Zacchaeus' response to Jesus. First of all, he calls him Lord, he calls him Master. This is Zacchaeus confessing Jesus as his king. He says, I may still have a job to do where I'm employed by the Romans, but Rome, Caesar, is no longer my master. You are. You are. Jesus will now be his master. Zacchaeus will no longer serve Caesar. He will no longer serve his own selfish interests. His heart has been surrendered to Christ. This is repentance, turning from self, turning from his sin of greed, and turning to Jesus. He calls him Lord. And then he says, and half of my goods I give to the poor. And here's where we need to ask the question. Why? Why would Zacchaeus say, half of my goods I give to the poor? Is this reparations? Well, I think biblically the answer is no. It's not reparations. Let me explain why. Remember, Zacchaeus is in the process of repenting for his sin and bearing fruit that keeps with that repentance. And think about Zacchaeus' life. What are the commandments that he has broken? All his life he's lived for money. He's been willing to sell out his countrymen. He's been willing to lie and cheat. He's been willing to steal. Why? Why has he done that? Because his God was money. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. When Zacchaeus takes half of his goods and gives them to the poor, 
It's not actually about the poor. It's about his worship of God. There's another story of another wealthy man, and Jesus told him, he said, I want you to give away your possessions to the poor and follow me. And this rich young ruler went away sorrowful. He went away sad. Jesus was exposing in that man's heart that his real God was money, and he wasn't ready to follow Christ. Zacchaeus, by giving away half his goods to the poor, is demonstrating that he doesn't worship his money anymore. He's willing to get rid of it. Because Jesus is his Lord. And notice even the language here. This is not restitution. He doesn't say, I will repay half of my goods to the poor. He says, I will give it to the poor. The half of my goods I give to the poor. This is not restitution. This is charity. This is generosity. This is, this is Zacchaeus divesting himself of his gods. Saying, I want to worship Jesus and not money. So I'm going to get rid of half of my stuff and put it somewhere where I'm sure it'll go to good use. But it's given indiscriminately to the poor, not to specific people. So I don't believe that when Zacchaeus says, half of my goods I give away, I'm giving it to the poor. I think rather this is the fruit of his repentance for breaking the first commandment, loving something else more than God. And then after that, he says, and... And on top of that, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Here he's acknowledging that he hasn't only broken the first commandment, he's also broken the eighth commandment. He's guilty of stealing. So he takes the idea of double restoration for stealing from the Old Testament, and he doubles that. He says, I'll give it back fourfold. This is Zacchaeus renouncing his sin to the fullest degree, and it is not called a gift, Notice he doesn't say, I will give it fourfold. He says, I will restore it. He's acknowledging that what he owns, he doesn't have a right to own. He was stealing. And this is restitution. This is restoration. But notice that this restitution is made specifically to those he has sinned against. He says, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So he's going to make payments to specific people in specific amounts, because he had sinned personally against them. He does not make restoration to those sinned against, get this, by other tax collectors. He's not trying to atone for the sin of all the people that were like him. He's dealing with his own sin, his own violation of the Eighth Commandment, to those that he has personally defrauded. So I do not believe that the story of Zacchaeus is an example of blanket reparations of the sort that are being called for today. This is rather an expression of personal repentance. What Zacchaeus does is voluntary. It's voluntary. And it is made by a man who was personally guilty and who was made to those that he had specifically sinned against. This is an expression of his repentance. Once again, biblical justice involves restitution in varying degrees according to personal responsibility. So I do not believe that the modern push for reparations can be justified by appealing to what Exodus teaches about restitution or by appealing to the example of Zacchaeus. So that's sort of the apologetic, here's how to think rightly today, you know, point of application. But let's get a little bit more personal. Let's talk about how this should apply to our own lives. There's a second point of application this morning, and it's, and it's, for, it's answering this question. What does this truth of restitution have to do with me, with personal repentance? How does this apply to personal repentance? 
Well, there's two important truths we need to understand regarding restitution and repentance. Number one, no amount of human restitution can make you right with God. I hope you hear that this morning. If you are someone who is guilty of sin against God, specifically sins that have harmed other people, even if you go back and make it right with those people, even if you make restitution, even if you make them whole, even if you pay back double or four times or ten times what you owe them, that in and of itself cannot and will not make you right with God. This morning's message has been dealing with justice on the horizontal level, with the effects of our sin on other people. And while God defines and requires this kind of justice, this horizontal justice of restitution, these actions, while good and necessary, here's what they can't do. They can't address the issue of your sin vertically against God. What does vertical justice require? Is it possible to make restitution and pay off our debts to God? The answer is no, it's not possible. Because our ver- the vertical justice of God's justice against our sin against Him, it requires more than restitution. It requires retribution, punishment. And no amount of restitution can avoid that. There are no hoops you can jump through in order to, to be right with God. You can't make restitution with him. There is no pathway to undoing what you have done when it comes to your sin against God. There is no way to rebalance the scales when it comes to your sin against God. While restitution is mandatory for our sin against our fellow man, restitution is impossible when it comes to our sin against a holy God. We do not come to God with our sheep. We do not come to God with our oxen. We do not come to God with the best of our crops. We do not come to God with our financial gifts or with our good works, with all of our efforts to pray and worship and serve him as if those things could somehow make up for our sin against God. No, when we come to God, we come with empty hands and we come asking for his mercy, asking for mercy knowing that our sin against God requires not restitution, but retribution. There is punishment that must fall. And only the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross can make us right with God. If you don't know Jesus this morning, if you're not a Christian and you're like, why are these guys talking about these old laws from the Old Testament? Who is Jesus? What's going on? Here's what you need to know. It's only the death of Jesus that can make you right with God. The justice of God that falls upon sinful man is death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's through the suffering of Jesus on the cross that divine retribution happens. The wrath of God against your sin and my sin is spilled out. It's poured out so that there's nothing left Jesus Christ propitiates the wrath of the Father. That's the big word, meaning that he satisfies God's requirement so that what justice requires is done. And now those who believe in Christ, we can be restored to God. We can be justified, declared righteous. We can be reconciled with God. 
And that's a beautiful truth. So listen, don't don't come away from this message thinking that you can try to somehow do enough to get back even with God, to make yourself right with God. You can't. We don't have the power. We don't have the ability to deal with our own sin. We need Christ. Only Jesus can solve the dilemma of vertical justice that is required. We need the peace with God that comes through the blood of Christ on the cross. And for those of us who are Christians, this truth ought to be a powerfully and permanently humbling reality. That it took the death of Jesus for my sins to be dealt with. There is no room for self-righteousness. There's no room for thinking that somehow I got myself back in God's good graces. Because I did everything I was supposed to do to deal with my sin. No way. Only Jesus can do that. And that is to humble us and to inspire us to worship and to love Christ. Believer, let your heart burn with love for Christ this morning because of what he did for you. Because he has made you right with God through his death and his resurrection. No amount of human restitution can make us right with God. It takes the death of Jesus to do that. So what does this truth of restitution have to do with our personal repentance Well, first of all, don't think that it will somehow make you right with God. It can't. It can't. But secondly, those who are made right with God, those who have been forgiven by God, those who are under the blood of Christ, we do need to seek to be made right with man. Again, this is not a hoop we jump through to to get right with God. This is fruit of repentance. This is a consequence of us being made right with God. And Zacchaeus is a great example here of someone who repented of his sin. And his actions showed the fruit of that repentance. He says, now that Jesus is my Lord, now that I've been made right with him, I need to go and get right with other people that I've sinned against. Listen, repentance doesn't escape horizontal justice. It's not a way to sidestep our responsibilities to make things right with people. Genuine repentance will embrace that responsibility and eagerly seek to make things right with those whom we have sinned against. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is a text I probably go to weekly just in encouraging people and in doing biblical counseling when we talk about real repentance. What does it look like to actually turn from sin? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. The Apostle Paul writes to a people who were guilty of sin, but he had rebuked them and they received it. And they turned from their sin. They repented. And as part of that repentance, they were willing to do whatever was required in order to deal with their sin. The Apostle Paul describes it as earnestness and indignation and fear and longing and zeal and even punishment. You see, the people at Corinth were willing. They were willing to embrace the consequences, earthly speaking, of their sin. They were willing to do whatever it took to make things right. And this was evidence of their grief over how awful their sin was and a willingness to truly repent of it. Listen, there are some people who want to say, well, I've confessed my sin against God and he's forgiven me. 
So now my obligation is complete. But listen, don't use the good news of the gospel and the free mercy and grace that is found in Christ as an excuse to not go back and make things right when we've sinned against other people. Biblical justice involves restitution. And so maybe you haven't stolen money from someone. Maybe you've not burned down their cornfield. But we can zoom out from this and see that if there is sin we've committed against other people, we do have a relational, horizontal obligation to go and try to make it right, to acknowledge our sin against another person, to acknowledge the damage or the harm that it has caused, and to seek to make that whole if there's anything we can do. If there's anything we can do. Psalm 5117 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. A heart that is really broken and contrite over sin will be willing, as fruit of genuine repentance, to embrace the consequences of sin and to go make it right with people when possible. In Christ, through the gospel, we have been made right with God, and this is an amazing mercy. Nevertheless, we ought to be the kind of people who acknowledge the real impact that our sin has on other people. This is the fruit of repentance, a willingness to make things right. It will honor other people and express love for them. But even more importantly, this is what pleases God. This is what pleases God. Biblical justice involves restitution in varying degrees according to personal responsibility. I hope that in light of what we've studied this morning, that these truths would shape your thinking about true justice so that you would be prepared to engage in whatever discussions may happen, but also so that you would be equipped to respond rightly in repentance to our own sin, to our own sin. I hope that our hearts will be eager to believe and obey what we've seen in God's word this morning. Let's seek to honor him and love him and trust him and obey him as we deal with sin, as we deal with justice, and as we receive his gracious mercy to us in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for help this morning. Some of these issues are difficult for us to get our, our mind around. And we've talked about some abstract things this morning. We've talked about things that are historical in nature and tried to connect them to modern uh, debates. We've talked about things that were evident in Zacchaeus' life and tried to see how that might actually need to be applied in certain ways in our own lives. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate in each of our hearts ways in which we need to believe or apply or obey these truths. Help us not to be hearers only, but to be doers of the word, to go away from here changed this morning. And I pray that you'd give us an increased confidence in your word, that we would not be ashamed of what scripture teaches, and that when we engage with matters of justice and repentance and restitution and these things, that we would not rely on our own logic, that we would not rely on, on philosophical argumentations alone, as helpful as they may be. I pray that we would stand on the word, that we would base our arguments and our thinking and our faith and our actions, our behavior, that we would base all of it on what your word tells us. We thank you for what you've given us in Scripture. And pray that we would make use of it, live in light of it, and worship you for it. Amen.